Second Thessalonians chapter one. Beginning in verse one, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. We now come to Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. The letter was written shortly after Paul's first letter. Paul had made his way into the upper region called Macedonia. And as he made his way to Macedonia, he found a base, if you will, in the capital city of Thessalonica. At that time in the first century, Thessalonica was a thriving seaport with some 250,000 people. As Paul plants the church and brings the gospel, literally a riot breaks out and Paul and Silas and Timothy, Paul escapes to Athens. Later, Silas and Timothy will join them in Corinth. Paul writes this second letter some weeks, perhaps months after he wrote the first letter. And the letter is described as bringing about new information, if you will. Apparently, the believers in Thessalonica were badly shaken. They were deeply troubled. If you look at chapter two, verse one, it says, now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as it from us, as though the day of Christ had come. They're badly shaken and deeply troubled because in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tribulations and the persecutions, some of them felt like they were already perhaps experiencing the great tribulation. The believers had apparently been exposed either to a false prophecy or a false word concerning the coming of the Lord. Some of the believers suspected that the awful suffering, the intense pain, the horrible persecutions meant that they had already been thrust into the age of the apocalypse, if you will. And so the present letter was to correct understandings and misunderstandings about the coming of the Lord. In First Thessalonians, Paul's themes included the coming of Jesus in the air for the church in chapter four, verses 13 through 18. Now, Paul will include the added information of the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth with his church. In the earlier letter, Paul spoke of the present age of grace and the Holy Spirit's working in the church. And now Paul will speak of the future day of the Lord and 
the Holy Spirit's work or, or the present information concerning Satan's working in the present age or in the present work, which which Paul will call the mystery of iniquity as it's found in Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verse seven. So Paul's first letter was to remind the believers of what Paul had taught them. And now Paul writes to correct the false teaching, which some have heard and some have believed. Broadly, Paul will cover three main topics in three short chapters. And I would encourage you when you get a chance to sit down and take some time and read the little epistle from start to finish. Like I said, it's three short chapters and Paul will encourage them in their suffering in chapter one. Paul will enlighten them about the day of the Lord in chapter two. And in chapter three, Paul will establish them in Christian living. You'll notice that right from the start, Paul develops a theology of suffering. Now, we live in a world and we live in a society that wants to either ignore or pretend that suffering isn't real. Paul knew that hurting people need hope. Hurting people not only need hope, but they need encouragement and they need answers. In the first chapter, Paul provides encouragement by reminding the believers that suffering helps us grow in verses three through five. Suffering prepares us for glory. That means our future inheritance in verses 6 through 10. Suffering glorifies Christ in the world in verses 11 through 12. And so that's the very first question we're to ask and answer. How are we to think about suffering? Clearly, there are those who think that suffering is a form of defeat. As a matter of fact, a whole industry has emerged and even a part of so-called Christianity has embraced what's been popularly called the health and wealth gospel. The idea that God wants you rich and God wants you prosperous and that God wants you never, ever to have to suffer anything. But yet Paul paints a picture of victory and suffering. Jesus said in the world. You will have tribulation. And guess what? You don't have to invite it. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to egg it on. Paul told the Christians at Lystra that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. That's what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Christians will experience opposition from those who are hostile to our creed. For those who are opposed to the character of Christ, to those who oppose our conduct. And so the source of opposition could include illness. It can include satanic activity. We discover things like Job chapter one and and Job chapter two and Luke chapter 13. We find that we have an implacable enemy in the person of Satan. There are ungodly people in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. There's our own fallen nature in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. There's this world system in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Even immature and unthinking Christians can become unwitting participants 
in trial, in suffering, in tribulation. So how are we to remain strong under savage attack and vicious persecution? As Paul answers those questions, we see a church standing strong, enduring hardship, willing to suffer for Christ. And so Paul presents to us a picture, if you will, of ministers who are faithful to the church in the opening verse. Believers who have a firm foundation in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. That believers know and have experienced the grace and peace of God in verse 2. That believers are walking and growing and overflowing in faith and in love in verses 3 and 4. And then Paul points to faith and endurance and suffering and trial in verse 5. And so the real question that we have to ask and that I would encourage you to ask yourself is, uh, how about you? How are you doing under the pressure? How are you doing in the midst of the pain? It doesn't take long to look out into a world and we see, hey, earthquakes move from Haiti to South America. It doesn't take long, even in our own community, to see that school shootings isn't something that just takes place a long time ago, but that can happen in the here and the now. Will you have the faith and will you have the patience and will you have the love to endure trial and to endure suffering and to endure hardship? It was John of the Cross who said, what does anyone know who doesn't know how to suffer for Christ? I like that. The reason why is because people can say, I know a lot about the Bible. I know about the themes of the New Testament. You may have memorized the books in the Bible. You may be able to repeat from memory Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You may be able to quote the main themes of all of the main books in the New Testament. But do you know the most basic and simple thing? How to endure hardship. How to hold up under pain. It was Isaac of Syria in the 7th century who wrote, quote, be persecuted, but don't persecute. Be crucified, but crucify not. Be wronged, but wrong not. Be slandered, but slander not. Do you know how to suffer? Do you know how to experience pain? Do you know how to hold up under the pressure and still call Jesus Christ Lord and still call heaven your home? Job, after experiencing much suffering, said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The son of Jacob, Joseph, discovered an Egyptian prison would be his training ground, his basic boot camp. But that one day he would rule Egypt, the iron chains around his legs and the iron chain around his neck would soon be translated into a gold chain around his waist and around his neck. Do you understand even the basics, the ABCs of Christianity? And of course, the most basic is this. Adversity builds character. That's the basics. Adversity builds character. And so in the opening verse, Paul writes, Paul, 
Silvanus or Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bible scholars generally agree that this letter was written about 51 A.D. from Corinth, since Paul and Silas or Silvanus and Timothy are all together in one place. That's Acts chapter 18, verses one through five. You may be wondering, well, why is he called Silas in one place and Silvanus in another? Because Silas is was a Jewish person who was also a Roman citizen and both as a Jew and as a Roman citizen, he had two names. This is the Silas, by the way, who was a constant companion of Paul and Barnabas. When Barnabas and Paul will eventually split up, Silas or Silvanus will go with Barnabas. Silas will eventually find his way to Rome where he will serve as the amanuensis or the personal secretary or letter writer for the apostle Peter. He will write first Peter as it's dictated to him by Peter. So Paul, Silas and Timothy will come with a special message for a special time. The letter follows and answers questions and then provides encouragement and hope. And this becomes important because every good pastor, every good father, every good mother, every good person who is has the charge of some person in their life should come to a place where they ask and answer the question, what is going on in your life and what are the circumstances of your life? And clearly they hear about the trial and about the persecution and they're going to address these issues. Jesus, by the way, in Matthew chapter 13, told a remarkable story. Some of you are familiar with it. It's a story about a person who goes out to sow seed. Some of you know the story. Jesus spoke of how some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Others fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth. And the plant sprung up and it quickly died because it didn't have deep roots. It says, and some fell among thorns and the thorns choked the seed. Others fell on good ground and yielded a good crop. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You can find the story in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 8. Jesus basically told his disciples the parable of the sower to remind them that some people hear the word of the kingdom and they don't understand it. That the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart and those who receive the seed by the wayside, others on stony or rocky places. And at first you hear the gospel with joy, yet because there's no root, they endure for only a little time. And so in Matthew 13, 22, Jesus says, for when tribulation or when persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Jesus reminded them that there are people who start off just fine. They hear a stirring message and they go, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to follow Christ. They hear about grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness. And they say, that's what I want. I want to experience a guilt free life. I want to have peace with God. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven and not to hell. And so they make a profession of faith or they walk an aisle or they pray a prayer. And then all hell breaks loose. 
They think, when I became a Christian, I thought that this was going to be the answer to all of my questions. I had no idea that my child would get sick or that my child would die or that my husband would leave me or that my wife would leave me. Who would have thought that when I became a Christian, I would experience opposition and trial and persecution? Who would have thought that people would make fun of me at school and some people would push or shove? There are people literally all over the world because of their faith and their confidence in Jesus Christ find themselves in prison. They find themselves being tortured. They find themselves experiencing all kinds of opposition. And so Paul knew that there would be those who, for whatever reason, had no idea that their faith would be tested. Because guess what? A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And so Paul writes and he says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The greeting combines the human composition, you, grace to you, and then the divine connection. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll note something that grace comes from God the Father and God the Son. And peace comes from God the Father and God the Son. Grace and peace are not gifts that are given to you by a religious institution or a financial institution or a social or a cultural institution. The believer's source and firm foundation is in God and Christ. And so Paul gives two familiar blessings from two familiar blessers. Paul opens up with grace and peace. And remember what grace is. It's God's unmerited favor. God's grace is his ability and willingness to impart to you favor. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of Jesus' death. It's because of Jesus' death on the cross that we experience not only grace, but peace. That means peace with God, because our sins are forgiven, and the peace of God, which is accompanied in our, in our heart. Paul could just as, as easily have said, fame and fortune and pleasure be to you. But guess what? Is it fame and fortune and pleasure that you really need? Is it fame and fortune and pleasure that will provide forgiveness and mercy? Is it fame and pleasure and fortune that's going to create for you everything that you think that you need? But look what Paul does. Paul knows what Christians really need. Grace provides us with everything that we need in order to accomplish the will of God. And peace gives us the serenity that we need to face every circumstance. I want to ask you a question and I want you to pause for just a moment to answer it. What is it that you desire for yourself? Do a laundry list, do a thought experiment in your mind and ask yourself that question. What is it that I want for myself? What is it that I want for myself right now? And guess what? As you put that list together, I'm going to ask you yet another question. Was grace and peace at the top of the list? Because if it wasn't, you've made a foolish list that will not satisfy you. 
if grace really gives you everything that you need in order to do the will of God and peace gives you the internal circumstances to face the challenges that life will deal to you, then you're going to be looking in a, in a direction that's going to disappoint. And so look what else Paul writes in, in verse 3. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you will abound toward each other. Paul reminds them of two duties. One is continual, the other appropriate. The continual duty is to give constant thanks. It's an appropriate obligation. The text literally reads, we are obligated to give thanks to God always for you brothers, even as it is fitting. The thought is found of all places in the liturgy of the Church of England, which says, quote, it is very meet, right and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks. It's exactly right. The idea is that gratitude and thanksgiving is something that erupts from inside of us as we consider the blessings of God. As a matter of fact, the word translated bound originally had the idea of a financial debt. It's translated owed in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8. And here it carries the idea of a strong sense of obligation. So when Paul says we are bound, the strong sense of obligation that Paul feels as he considers the trial and the persecution and the pain his heart wells up inside of them with gratitude over the reality of what God has done in their life. As a matter of fact, Greek scholars like Thayer say that when it's followed by the infinitive, as here, we are bound to thank, that, that it means exactly that, obligation, necessity, the necessity to do something. And so Paul speaks of the love that the believer has towards other believers. You'll note that he says it, it isn't their love for this world and it isn't certainly their love for this world's circumstance, but it's a love, a love that is growing and a love that is going and a love that is extended to other believers. Clearly, the most important thing in your life is to have a right relationship with God and Christ. The most important thing in your life is your personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're making a very serious mistake if you miss the second most important thing in your life. And the second most important thing in your life is your relationship to each other. And your fellowship with one another. And that might annoy you and that might that might not excite you very much. But that's the reality. Clearly, in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul encouraged the believers. He said to them in first Thessalonians, grow more and more in love with each other. And in second Thessalonians, they did exactly that. Now, think about this for a moment. Paul wrote to them and said, grow more and more in love. They needed the message to grow more and more in love. 
But not only did they need the message, they heeded the message. That makes every pastor's heart warm. When a pastor says to you, please grow in your confidence and in your trust in the Lord. Please grow in your understanding in in the promises of God. Please grow in your affection one for another. Please allow the grace of God and the peace of God and the love of God to manifest itself in the patient way that you extend yourself to one another. So Paul speaks of the love that the believer has. And guess what? It's a needed message. It's a heated message. But it's clearly not a message that our culture embraces. We are immersed not in a, in a culture of grace and love and patience. We are immersed in a culture of entitlement. Do you know what the word entitlement means? It means an expectation of getting something that you think you deserve, that you think belongs to you. I'm entitled to respect. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to health care. I'm entitled to money. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to that. Now, think I want you to think for just a moment of the deeply held entitlements that we think that we have. Perhaps none is deeper than the entitlement that we think to be free from suffering. Well, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have to go without. Yet the Bible teaches the exact opposite. It doesn't say you are entitled to be free from suffering. The Bible repeatedly warns us to expect suffering in John chapter 15, verse 19, to expect suffering in John chapter 16, verse 2, verse 20, verse 33, to expect suffering in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, to expect suffering in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. How many times does it have to say expect suffering, expect suffering, expect suffering? for you to go, hey, maybe we should expect suffering. We realize that others suffer in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We know that when there is a 7.0 earthquake in Haiti and 200,000 people instantly die, we know it brings with it a flood of suffering. We know that when an 8.8 earthquake shakes Santiago to its core and literally the earth splits like a hydrogen bomb has been exploded, all of a sudden the firm earth beneath your feet, the one that you thought you could trust, you begin to realize how fragile life is. You think the Columbine is something that happened 10 years ago and then all of a sudden... When you least expect it, another person comes, picks up a rifle, and shoots at children. You know, the people who died in Haiti and the people who died in Santiago and the people who experience suffering, you never wake up and you, you think, today is the day that I am going to experience pain and loss. We're told not to despise our suffering. We're told to patiently endure our suffering in a steadfast way. And the expression, as is fitting, means proper or appropriate under the circumstances. We might even use the colloquial expression, it makes perfect sense. 
Paul uses two strong verbs concerning their faith and love. He uses the term hyper, oxano. It's found only here in the Greek New Testament. The simple verb oxano occurs some 22 times. Twelve times it's translated grow. Seven times it's translated increase. But when you begin with the prefix hyper, it means to increase beyond measure. It means to go beyond the boundaries that can be measured. It can mean to grow wonderfully or to increase abundantly. And the, the word hyper is equivalent to a Latin word super. We use the term super all the time. Supermarket. Super califragilistic expialidocious. In Latin or Spanish, they'll say supermercado. Or when they're surprised, they'll say, super, wow. But that's the idea. The next word is pleo, nadzo. It means nine times it's translated in the Greek New Testament to abound or to super abound. Bible teachers have pointed out that Paul is very deliberate in his choice of words. The one speaks of an internal organic growth like a tree. The other is diffusive or expansive in, in character, like the flooding of the Nile. Pleonazo was a word that the Greeks would use to describe when the waters would come rushing down the Nile and it would head for the headwaters of the Nile and it would bring with it an overflow. And as the delta would be flooded, it would create a mechanism of irrigating vast tracts of land, and it was Egypt that was the breadbasket of the ancient world. And notice the order. First faith, super faith, and then love, a super kind of love. Now, faith puts us, it was C.H. McIntosh, one of the great Bible teachers of old, who said, faith puts us in contact with the eternal spring of love in God himself and the necessary consequences that our hearts are drawn out in love to all who belong to him. The point being that the faith inside of our heart wells up inside of us to produce a super affection for one another. So what does overflowing love really look like? It's the kind of love that binds people together like a family, like the family of God. It's the kind of love that forges a bond, a cement that holds people together in an unbreakable union and a deep affection. And usually that unbreakable union and that deep affection comes as you share mutual experiences. Pain, hardship, tribulation, of suffering. It's the kind of love that nourishes and then nurtures one another. It's the kind of love that shows concern. It's the kind of love that's committed to looking out for the welfare of others. This is the kind of love that comforts and supports and encourages in spite of differences and circumstances. This is the kind of love that each believer is to have towards every other believer. Not just the believers who go to our church. Not just the believers who live in this community, not just the believers who live in this state, not just the believers who live in this country, but it is to extend to each and every person who embraces 
the knowledge of God and the love of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that he writes in verse four, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all. Note what it says in all your persecutions, plural and tribulations, plural. And note this, that you endure. It's not. That you've caved in and you've given up. Because of the tribulations and the persecutions and the suffering, it just didn't make sense to be a Christian anymore. It doesn't make sense to be laughed at. It doesn't make sense to be made fun of. It doesn't make sense for people to make fun of you because you are a person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus. The believers, the believers were under savage attack. You may not know this, but this is where persecution begins, really. I mean, uh, there was certainly persecution that began in Jerusalem. The, the, the apostles were persecuted. Remember, um, James and Peter are, are imprisoned. James gets his head cut off and Peter is supernaturally released by an angel. Stephen gives the gospel and as he's giving the gospel, he endures pain and persecution. They shove him to the outskirts of the edge of, of the, the valley of Hinnom. And there a young Pharisee takes coats and watches as a group of people pummel him with stones until his life expires. Paul knew what it meant because he had been both persecutor and persecuted. Paul goes up to the place called Asia. He makes it across the Dardanelles and he himself is thrown into prison even as a Jew, he knows what it's like to have people pick up rocks and stone him. He knows what it's like to hang from a magistrate's pole. And he knows what it's like to take for someone to take a rod and beat him until he loses consciousness. The persecutions ranged from mild to fatal. And some were ridiculed and some were mocked and some were cursed by their family and friends. Some were thrown out. Some were threatened. Some were rejected. Some were physically attacked. Some were beaten. Some were even martyred. But Paul knows. Paul knows that the secret to endure. Is that you've experienced real grace. Real peace. Because if you've never experienced the grace of God in the person of Jesus, if you've never experienced the peace of God, which comes from knowing that your your sins are truly, really, remarkably, fully and finally forgiven. Then you'll never be able to grow in love and in patience. Max Hindle once wrote, all sorrow and suffering are designed to teach us lessons we would not or could not learn in any other way. Paul's boast is because of their patience and their faith. Here, patience is the Greek word hupomone. Remember, I love that word because it reminds with Italian ice cream. Spamone. It really means steadfastness. It means endurance. It means perseverance. 
I once heard perseverance is defined this way. By perseverance, the snail made it into the ark of Noah. You slime your way a little bit at a time. The Thessalonians held fast in their confidence. It was in the Lord Jesus. It was in the gospel of Jesus. Through persecution, through hardship, through trial, through tribulation. By the way, persecution means attacks from the outside. Trial or tribulation literally means pressures or afflictions. It becomes a description of the things that are squeezing you on the outside and then squeezing you from the inside. Have you ever felt pressure on the outside squeezing you and pressure on the inside squeezing you? All that's left is a narrow, narrow channel. Richard Evans wrote, In sorrow, problems are likely to seem larger than they are, and people are likely to lose perspective, all of which points up the importance of patience, of understanding, of self-control, of sensitivity to the feelings of others, and sensitivity to situations. Paul's sensitivity emerges from the fact that no one knows persecution better than him. Paul knows what it's like to have a stone pressed against your body. Paul knows what it's like to be beaten. Paul knows what it's like to be ridiculed. Paul knows what it means to be pressed into a narrow, narrow place. Because when the pressure comes, what is truly, what is legitimately, What is significantly inside of your heart will leak out. The saints' lives are filled with persecution and tribulation, but look what it says. They endure. The word tribulation, like I said, is a broad word and it can mean any kind of trial. It can mean any kind of pressure. But the context in our study is the pressure that has come from the Jewish communities that are living in Thessalonica. Because the Jewish communities are not happy with Paul. And they're not happy with the converts. And they're not happy with this new thing called Christianity. Because Christianity is a threat to their religion. Now remember, I want you to think carefully. There are many people... Who love their religion. It is their religion that gives them comfort. It is their religion that gives them comfort. It is the duties and obligations. And responsibilities of religion. And Paul. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wipes away all of these religious duties and obligations. And defines what it means to know God. And love God. And serve God. In a personal relationship with Christ. Paul knows the value of tribulation and persecution to perfect faith and love and patience. I'm a husband and a father and a pastor. And my first choice for my wife and my first choice for my sons and their families, my first choice is for them to be healthy and for them to be safe. But there comes a time in every parent's life 
when they realize that they cannot forever shelter their loved ones from life's cruelties. Do you have the ability to prevent sorrow for your children? Pain? Can you prevent persecution? Can you prevent tribulation? No. But you know what you can do? You can care. You can care. Warren Wiersbe was fond of saying, A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. It bears repeating. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. I want you to think for a moment. Their endurance and faith became a strong testimony to those who were standing near. Paul writes that their faith and their endurance had caused Paul to boast about them to others. Paul reminds them, your faith is increasing. Your patience is increasing. Your grace and peace are growing. Your love is overflowing. And now your testimony is helping others. See, you might be thinking that your patience, the grace, the love is specifically suited only for you to mold you and to shape you. But Paul is reminding you that your grace and your mercy and your patience under pressure can provide hope for others who are suffering. Can you imagine having a testimony of standing up for Christ under pressure that others could boast about? Pliny, the Roman governor later in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, who was the son of Pliny, the governor of Macedonia, was so puzzled about the Christians that he wrote a famous letter to the emperor Trajan asking for his advice. And these were some of the challenges that he faced, that a certain unknown Christian was brought before him and Pliny, finding little fault in him, proceeded to threaten him. I will banish you, he said. You cannot, was his reply, for all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay you, said the governor. You cannot, answered the Christian, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I'll take away your possessions, continued Pliny. Thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven. I will drive you away from man and beast so that you have no contact with any living thing, was his final threat. And the calm reply was, you cannot, for I have an unseen friend from whom you are not able to separate me. The governor had the power of life and he had the power of death and he had the power of torture and he had the power of confiscation. But he couldn't rattle the saint. And one day, one day you might find yourself in a very dark place. And the only thing that you have is a complete trust and a complete confidence in Jesus. And clearly there is something else. Their endurance and their faith was also a sign of God's coming judgment upon the unbelievers. Because you may not believe this and you may not realize this, but the believers received strength, supernatural strength to bear up under hardship. There's not yelling or screaming or signing petitions or appealing to the government. They don't become hysterical or retaliatory. The persecuted were actually encouraging their 
persecutors to come to Christ and to trust Christ and to believe Christ. And you may not believe this, but your ability to endure under hardship becomes proof that God is real. And there are people who wonder if God really is real. They wonder if God really does care. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, Peter wrote, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. It's interesting to me. You may miss the point. The presence of God and the glory of God and the strength of God In your life. It's proof that he exists. And that he's going to vindicate your love and vindicate your faith and vindicate your endurance. Paul basically reminds them that the Lord Jesus is going to judge and take vengeance upon the persecutors of his dear people. That persecution becomes a clear and an unmistakable sign of God's judgment. You feel the earth shake and you think. God's judgment. You hear, see the wave coming and crashing and you think God's judgment. But guess what? So is persecution. It's a clear and unmistakable sign that God is going to enter you as evidence to a world that rejected God and rejected Christ. This is what it means in verse 5, which it says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That expression, manifest evidence, deserves a closer look. The word is endigma. It is only here in the New Testament. And it comes from this closely related to another word, indignamai, which occurs 11 times, it means to mark or to point out. And in the middle voice, it means to show forth or to prove. Paul is using a metaphor, a description that treats the believer, that the believer himself or herself, like evidence, is entered into trial in order to justify God's righteous judgment for those who continue to persecute the saints. Here's the idea. That your eye is burned out for the testimony of Jesus. Your ear has been cut off. Your leg is shriveled from the torture. And so your tortured body is presented in evidence because the person says, I love God and I believe God. I love God. Remember, Paul himself said, I persecuted Christians. I blasphemed God. Jesus from heaven said, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response was, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted. Here's what Jesus is saying. When somebody spits in your eye and when somebody slaps your face and when somebody kicks you and when somebody deprives you and when somebody disgraces you and when someone defames you, when someone slanders you, when someone insults you for the sake of the gospel, they're in fact insulting Christ. And their patient endurance is now evidence entered Against their persecutors. 
on the day of judgment. Oh, I love God. Then how do you explain treating God's people so wickedly and so wrongly? The believers were standing up bravely under the persecution and the affliction, which was evidence of God's just dealing. The believers were receiving supernatural support. And look what it says. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, do people suffer in order to obtain the kingdom of God? The answer is no. Your suffering does not allow you entrance into heaven. It isn't the person who suffers the most who gets the greatest reward in heaven. The point that I think that Paul is making and which would be much more accurate when we think of suffering as a preparation that it's preparing us for the the kingdom. Heroic endurance was the path. And the preparation, but make no mistake about it. Your entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based on whether or not you do or you don't have a right relationship with God in Christ. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of works. Lest any person should boast. You cannot enter into heaven with one eye missing and one arm missing and one leg missing and say, I gave my eye, I gave my arm, I gave my leg. No. We enter heaven because, not because we've endured suffering, but because we've trusted Christ. Now here's the key. We love and trust Christ. Our grace, our peace, our patience, Our love, we trust Christ and therefore we're willing to endure the suffering and endure the hardship and endure the persecution. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Isn't the presence or the absence of pain that ingratiates you to God? The chapter begins with praise. The chapter continues with promise and then it ends in prayer. And Paul reminds them that their faith is growing and that their love is overflowing, that their patience is increasing. Their testimony is helping others remain faithful and their suffering is an evidence of God's soon reward. You want to know why? Because of faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted you might think I don't want my faith tested but guess what the test will reveal what's inside of you we don't look for suffering trust me you don't have to look for it it will come you may look for reasons for suffering and the Bible will give you plenty of reasons for suffering but I have bad news for you No amount of reasons will make the pain go away. And if you live in a world where this is what you want more than anything, you want the pain to go away and you're willing to deny Jesus and you're willing to deny the Bible and you're willing to deny your deeply held convictions because you want the pain to go away. And if you think that blaspheming God and denying the Bible will make your pain go away, you're sadly mistaken. 
The Bible gives instructions on what constitutes our proper reaction to suffering. We're to expect it. We're not to desire it. We're to weigh our current affliction under the coming glory that we will receive in heaven. It was in describing the Nicene Council that Vance Havner said that not more than a dozen of the 318 delegates had not lost an eye or a hand or did not limp upon a leg that had shrunk in its sinews by the burning iron of torture. Imagine you are at the Council of Nicaea and you are hobnobbing among the pastors and there are men with their eye gone and with their face burned and with their ears singed and with their arms paralyzed and with their leg on a crutch and with the marks of beatings and torture. When Constantine the emperor went to the council of Nicaea, he saw the men who were there and he wept. He wept because they had experienced trial and pain and persecution. They had been horribly disfigured and deformed by Rome. And so it is in every generation. Christians are tested. One of my favorite stories is the story of John Wesley. He was riding along a road one day when it dawned on him that he had not suffered any persecution for three whole days. Not a single brick, not a single egg had been thrown at him for three whole days. And alarmed, he got down from his horse. He kneeled in the sand and he began to cry out to God. And he said, can it be that I have sinned? Can it be that I am backslidden? Wesley cried out. He asked the Lord where he failed the Lord to show his failure, if any, if any fault could be found. And as he was crying out to the Lord, a rather rough fellow heard Wesley crying. He said, I'm going to fix that Methodist preacher. And he picked up a brick and he aimed for Wesley's head and he threw it right past his nose. It landed right next to him. And Wesley cried up and rejoiced. He said, thank God I'm all right. Thank God that I still have the presence of the true and the living God. Things have changed, haven't they? We long for the abuse and the slander and the lies to end. And we're unwilling to bear even the smallest pain. Or the slightest affliction. We live in a world where a person says, you hurt me and I'm never going to forgive you and I'm never going to let it go. But you can't hold on to your anger. And you can't hold on to your bitterness. And you can't hold on to your resentment. And hold on to your love at the same time. One or the other will grow. Your hatred, your bitterness, your anger, your resentment will grow. Her grace will grow. Patience will grow. Forgiveness will grow. Love will grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, as we look at this introduction. Lord, we know that there's a whole lot more that we have yet to learn. Lord, we think that we know a lot when we can outline the books, when we can name the theme, when we can cite the content. 
Lord, we think that we know a lot because we know and understand historical and biblical theology and and New Testament chronology that we can cite our sources and that we have read the great fathers. But we don't even know the most basic and simple things. We don't know how to suffer in a way that will cause us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. Lord, we pray that you would teach us the ABCs. That adversity builds character. It seems so trite. It seems cliche. To say that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But Lord, it is not strength that we're looking for because we know Paul's plea that it is in his weakness that your strength is perfected. Lord, in humility, we beg you to make us dependent upon you. Lord, we know that there is nothing greater than our friendship and our fellowship with you. And there is nothing greater after that than a growing love that's rooted and grounded in grace and in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.